there's a certain cost to freedom. The founders and, and the, those who wrote the Constitution understand, which is, hey, you know what? We might not catch every crime out there thanks to the Fourth Amendment. That's the price of freedom. Right? There are certain things that you just have to draw a balance and say, hey, you know, we don't want to live in a totalitarian society, society that doesn't value individual liberty. And it's kind of the price you have to pay. I say this is about modernizing core infrastructure. And the same reason you need to modernize airports, you need to modernize mass transit systems, you need to modernize the dollar for increasing utility in a digital future. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. In late December and in early January, in other words, eons ago, before Bitcoin soared above $40,000, dropped 22% and then rebounded again, before a mob invaded the Capitol, before Democrats impeached President Trump for a second time, and before Twitter and Facebook canceled Trump's and tens of thousands of accounts in a wholesale purge, two big regulatory announcements jolted the crypto community out of its holiday sojourn. First, on December 18th, the US Treasury published a proposal to expand the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network's requirements for identity monitoring and reporting by crypto exchanges. Under these proposed new rules, that powerful agency, known as FinCEN, would require exchanges to collect names and home addresses from the owners of private self-custodied digital wallets that receive more than $3,000 in currencies daily and to file special cryptocurrency transaction reports about any wallet that receives more than $10,000 a day. The announcement prompted an outpouring of criticism for the crypto community and among digital rights activists. Many saw it as an attack on privacy. As of this recording, more than 7,500 comments have been posted to FinCEN's site. That constitutes more than two-thirds of all public comments received by the agency for various rules and proposals dating back to 2008. Then on Monday last week, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, which sets and coordinates federal banking rules, offered a rule change that was much more favorably received among the crypto community. The OCC said banks could now use stablecoins to conduct payments and other activities, including stablecoin tokens issued on public blockchains such as Ethereum. It prompted some breathless commentary on how integrating the old world of banking with the new world of decentralized finance paves the way to a new global financial system of programmable money. To many, this seemed like a weird good cop, bad cop routine out of Washington. Is the administration pro or anti-crypto? Me, I think there's much more coordination here than meets the eye. There's a common theme with respect to how both rules fit into geopolitical tensions that digital currency technology is stirring up. We'll go into that in this week's episode, which is why one of our guests today is Christopher Giancarlo, the former chairman of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, who is now senior counsel at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher, and among other roles, founding principal of the Digital Dollar Foundation. As someone who knows the ropes in Washington and is thinking hard about how the U.S. should prepare for a world of digital currencies, his insights will be invaluable. 
The other question this throws up is how do we forge a more constructive relationship between the crypto community and policymakers, not just in the US, but in the global setting in which this technology exists? For that, we've brought in Marvin Amori, the chief legal officer for the decentralized exchange protocol Uniswap. Not only does that role give Marvin a solid footing in the crypto community's regulatory concerns, but we think his past influential work for the internet tech industries developing a common framework for net neutrality laws comes with real lessons on how to do these things right. And as an influential activist for digital civil rights, the questions here of privacy and digital autonomy are right in his wheelhouse. But before we get there, before we get to Chris and Marvin, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. I was just thinking, as you heard me at the beginning there, just citing, like, we've lived a lifetime almost in the past three weeks. And I was just thinking back to the last recording we did a week ago, where we both emerged, uh, all, all of us, the four of us as well, uh, the, the two guests we had on, into looking at the fact that while we've been living in this little bubble of our podcast conversation, the capital had suddenly been besieged. By, <laughs> yes, yes. By a mob. Incredible. At the same time, in this time, Bitcoin in that period since then, like, wow up through 40,000, back through 20,000, back up again. I feel like at a time when we were sort of supposed to be easing our way into the new year and taking breaks, I don't know, I need, I need one already. I need to go back on vacation. This has been exhausting. Yeah, well, you know, welcome to the new year, same as the old year, right? I mean, as, as one does, every time we do a recording or anything that kind of requires this level of intense concentration, you then go to your device and check. And I have to say, I, I certainly a first to get, you know, attempted coup in the Capitol as, uh, as sort of the, the alerts for coming and blowing up my phone versus some other things. And I certainly hope that that is the last time that ever happens. What a start to this new year it's been on so many different levels. And I think that we're just focusing, you know, in those comments just on what's going on in the United States. But certainly we also have, you know, vaccines rolling out at different paces around the world. We've got announcements coming down from, you know, all over the world about travel restrictions, new lockdowns, new bans on, on, on activity and things like this. And so in some ways it feels a lot like deja vu and it feels a little bit like the spring. I feel like it's similar to Bitcoin, right? It's up and down and up and down every single day. So I suppose we just have to hold on, <laughs> hold on. Yeah, that's right. Strap in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, appropriate to some extent, at least that conversation then is about events happening in Washington, because the flip side of this, of course, is that we have a new administration coming in. And that frames, I think, today's discussion very well. Like, what, you know, what is the future relationship in terms of regulation and policymaking for the crypto community and for broadly, you know, finance, I suppose, going to look like under the new administration? And I think there's, there's three things I'd like to hit upon today. Like, you know, one is these two laws, these two proposed laws. One is a law, one is a proposal that's come out, has this geopolitical dimension. I can't help but see them being in sync. If you look at one part of the FinCEN law, this is uh, JP Koning pointed this out, not many people have noticed it, but it's not only really exchanges that are making are now required to keep this monitoring and, and do this reporting, but anybody that is, touches legal tender digital assets. And so an exchange or a wallet, anybody essentially exchanging on behalf of somebody else, a CBDC, a central bank digital currency, which of course would include China's. And at the same time, I think, you know, if you layer that with stable coins right now, we think of them as a dollar based stablecoin, you could think of the idea of promoting them to be a very constructive way for the US forward looking to promote the dollar in the world. So I sort of see these two things potentially as a way for the US to be thinking about how does it preserve the hegemony 
of dominance within the financial system, particularly in terms of monitoring and surveillance and rule setting, with these two things coming into play, which they look contradictory, but in many respects, they may be part of the same process. And I think we're going to dive into that, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one thing we talk about a lot is like the intersection and interplay of different regulations from different parts of the ecosystem. And certainly this is not an area, digital currency that is, that can be dominated exclusively by one institution, you know, and by by one agency. There really is this necessity to consider the impact of, of rules and notices and regulations that are binding that come down from other parts of the house that can be quite powerful. And so here you are seeing really in almost tandem, these two seemingly opposite things come up that do and lead to a bigger picture when you put them together. I think, you know, we've talked a lot on the show about dollarization, about whether where that's been a tool of soft power, uh, the implications that that's had and how the U.S. has in many cases, you know, and again, I mean, this is kind of the role of the U.S. government to some extent, as we've noted, is to, to look after U.S. citizens and their interests and the, and the U.S.'s interests as, as deemed by a democratically elected administration. It's certainly digital currency poses a lot of new opportunities, but also threats to that, which we've also talked about. So I think it's really interesting to think about the intersection of these notices, other ones that we think will probably be forthcoming under an administration. Um, but fundamentally to me, what those things miss to some extent is this idea of privacy, you know, and thinking about where does that sit and who is regulating privacy right now when it comes to digital currencies. So I know that's something, Michael, you have thoughts about as well. Well, yeah, and our two guests are going to be able to talk great yeah. things, I think, about the importance of that. So yeah, I mean, I see this as like, that's it, geopolitical. There's this privacy component to this, I think, is it plays into it. I'm sure we can talk about that. And then just there, the third point being like, how do we get through this, right? What is, what is actually the best path forward for what is a rather messy looking way in which rules are being set within this sector right now? What is the best way for the community and government to come together? So without further ado, why don't we bring in to start with Christopher Giancarlo. Chris, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Michael, Sheila. Great to be with Marvin as well, someone whose work I've admired for years. So it's a pleasure right. to be with you today. It's great to have you. So Chris, you kindly provided to us, I think it was the second last day of the year, a column for Coindesk that I think was quite instructive about where you saw the problems with this FinCEN announcement. Lay out, if you don't mind, what you saw as the problem there in terms of this bigger story, I think, in terms of the US positioning itself as a, in a future of digital currencies. Sure. Uh, in two words, I'd say missed opportunity. You know, I think that the United States in, in this wave of innovation doesn't necessarily have the technological advantage that it had in the earlier waves of the internet. But what it does have is potentially a real ace card to play, and that is constitutional notions of individual privacy and economic privacy. And we're not actually leading with that advantage in this discussion around unhosted wallets and digital money generally. What we're doing is applying a sort of wooden surveillance approach that you know brings to mind the type of surveillance you might see an authoritarian regime and not necessarily a democratic regime. And we're we're not taking advantage of traditional values that have long been the hallmark of the dollar. And it's a missed opportunity. What what I find so troubling about FinCEN's NPRN is the limited scope for a real healthy debate around what should be the privacy, the zone of privacy in the future digital of money. Now, there's no question that in a stable economy and society, there's a zone for law enforcement to be able to police uses of money that may violate criminal statutes, be useful money laundering or all kinds of illicit activities. And there's always a zone for that, but there has to be balanced against 
the legitimate rights of, of a free society to have privacy in legitimate financial transactions free from government surveillance. Well, 15 days, um, you know, divided between Christmas and New Year's is just not the opportunity to have that proper discussion, nor is an opportunity to really develop this in a way that I think is consistent with, with American values. And the dollar exists as the world's reserve currency for many, many reasons. But one of those, or, or several of those, are the values inherent in it of a free society. And are we not going to bring those same values to bear in the future of money? If we don't, we may find the dollar is no longer the reserve currency because those values are not present in it. We might find that values of maybe closed societies become more dominant in the future of money. And I don't think that's in either the U.S. or the globe's interest. Marvin, let's push on that a little bit. So you, you know, have been called by many the father of net neutrality. You know, you are a person who I believe brought the first action, was really responsible for that coming up, and then of course led the effort with the FCC in terms of getting net neutrality established as a principle. And I wonder if there is an element of deja vu for you in some of this. You know, like some of these conversations are very similar, particularly around privacy. But I'd love to get your thoughts on that. When I talk to people in the fintech community, I, I, I tell them, you know, I come from the tech part of fintech. It's great to be paired with uh, Chris, who comes from the Finn part. You know, my background is really 20 years of working on the internet. And I remember in the early days of the internet, you know, one kind of piece of deja vu is what jumped out to everyone when the internet began was all the bad stuff. Congress couldn't believe there was porn on the internet. We had to protect the children from porn. It was the number one thing that people noticed on the internet was the problems. And in fact, the first major Supreme Court case about the internet went to the Supreme Court and had the Supreme Court upheld Congress's action, pretty much every website would have needed to get your credit card number and verify you were 18 to go on the internet. The internet would have been for adults only. The entire trajectory of the internet would have been different. Right? But luckily, the Supreme Court pushed back on congressional action under the First Amendment. But the first impulse of Congress 20 years ago with the internet was, let's cripple this thing because of the porn. That would have really undermined all the benefits we've seen, all the tremendous benefits, everything from you know, things we could have never imagined back then, we have now. When it comes to cryptocurrency, we see something similar. And it's kind of natural that your first instinct is this technology can be used for bad things. And you see there's some scammers out there, some, some folks using it for nefarious purposes. And if you're someone who works in the industry, you want all that stuff cleaned up. You'd happily work with government folks to design good policy to get rid of all those folks who are, you know, giving your industry a bad name, using this technology you, you admire for bad purposes. Once again, I think some parts of government are getting ahead of themselves and just focusing on the bad and not on the benefits. In order to kind of have that kind of conversation, Chris just mentioned, like, how do you think through what's the future of financial privacy? You actually have to rethink it now that we have this new technology that permits us to have more granular privacy, really, to, to rethink the assumptions behind the history of privacy includes assumptions about the third party doctrine and making information available to banks. And we can rethink all that in a thoughtful way with multiple different stakeholders, or we can, you know, as Chris said, rush through rules that might be poorly thought out. And, and, and I'm hoping we do the former, not the latter. If I can just pick on something that Marvin said about assumptions underlying rules and legislation. When I was at the CFTC, we had a couple of, of internal working rules that we applied when we drafted new rule proposals. One was to check our assumptions at the door and make sure that rules we put forward based upon real evidence, real solid quantitative data. Well, there's an assumption running through this NPRM that just runs right through it. And it's that basically is that all unhosted wallet transactions are inherently illicit 
and therefore undeserving of privacy. I think that's a terrible assumption that to begin a, a national dialogue around what is going to be the privacy rights in the future of money. But that assumption is baked into that notice of proposed rulemaking. One of the things I was so struck by was the the comment from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, one of the seven and a half thousand comments that were made to the FinCEN proposal. And I think it frames really nicely why privacy and money matters. The average person doesn't think about it. I think there's a full understanding of why it is so important that we maintain this privacy. But they say, look, even in an increasingly digital world, we've had a right to engage in private financial transactions. We've seen protesters and dissidents in Hong Kong, Belarus, and Nigeria make deliberate choices to use cash or cryptocurrencies to protect themselves against surveillance. The ability to transact anonymously allows people to engage in political activities protected in the US by the First Amendment, which may be sensitive or controversial. Anonymous transactions should be protected whether those transactions occur in the physical world with cash or online. Marvin, I was just wondering if you can respond to that. Is there a deep enough understanding both in Washington and in the general public about why this actually matters to Chris's point earlier? So Michael, you asked, does the government understand the importance of privacy and the importance of free speech when it comes to financial freedom? The thing about the government is you often have different divisions and different branches that that think about things differently. So there was a part of the government that was funding global encryption, right? There was parts of the government funding technologies to make it easier for dissidents to communicate, to send messages to one another, to organize the pro-democratic protests around the world. They were being funded. Congress was allocating funds and they were giving out grants to shore up encryption. And then you had other parts of the government lobbying hard to put backdoors and encryption and destroy the technology. The same congressmen are voting for both of them, I'd take it, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Both congressmen are voting for both of them and you'd have these interagency disputes and you had to wrestle with these issues. In the end, you know, one of the reasons why the congressmen are voting for both of them is they wish the technology could do something it simply can't, which is provide privacy only for the people we like and not for anyone else, right? And that's just not possible. <laughs> There's a certain cost to freedom. The founders and, and those who wrote the Constitution understand, which is, hey, you know what? We might not catch every crime out there thanks to the Fourth Amendment. That's the price of freedom, right? There are certain things that you just have to draw a balance and say, hey, you know, we don't want to live in a totalitarian society, society that doesn't value individual liberty, and that's kind of the price you have to pay. I'll jump into another question that came out of that dialogue. And I want to point to three sort of constructs where we've, in the last generation, we've seen technology bump against these constructs in very different ways. So the first construct is uh, information. The first wave of the internet was an internet of information. And interestingly, it emerged into a, a federal regulatory structure that was really a pretty light zone because of our First Amendment protections of freedom of speech. So the internet actually, in the first case, uh, didn't face a lot of opposition. I think Marvin's absolutely right. There was certainly calls in Congress for banning because of pornography. But at the end of the day, a Democrat White House under President Clinton, a Republican Congress under Newt Gingrich, came up with a first do no harm approach, and the internet flourished. And a lot of the lessons learned were don't ask permission, ask forgiveness, keep going till you break something. And the first internet wave, the wave of information, flourished pretty successfully. We're now in a, a new construct where, in fact, what we're talking about is an internet of things of value. Whoa, well, it's a very different construct when you talk about regulation, when you're talking about things of value. 
we have at least three federal bank regulators regulating the holdings of people's things of value, two market regulators in Washington. And then at every state level, you've got bank regulators and trust regulators. And so the U.S. government, in fact, most governments have long presumed the authority of government entities to oversee things of value. And so this new wave of the internet, the internet of value, is not running into a regulatory light zone. It's actually running into a regulatory heavy no-go zone. And we've seen the clash. I mean, just look at you know the ICO uh, challenge a few years ago. And that was a statement by one regulator that they were not conceding ground in this new internet of value. And then I want to point to a third construct, and that is identity. And really, so many of the conversations we're having now ultimately come down to identity. And identity is a whole different construct in the United States because it's almost a construct of, of schizophrenia. We have long struggled with identity in the United States between you know, constitutional libertarians and yet at the same time, the need for some ID system. And we've come up with the worst of all worlds, and that is you know, driver's licenses and social uh, security numbers which are both under-inclusive and over-inclusive, depending on how you use them. And so I think, you know, in all cases, we, I guess, like in most societies, are, are both a, a product of our past and our approaches and our constitutional liberties, but also these new technologies, these new waves of the internet bring new challenges to old constructs that we haven't often been successful in, in working through. And I think that's one of the things, Michael, you began our conversation today talking about whether these two actions by the FinCEN and OCC are coordinated, or whether it's part of a master plan. I would say it's, they're both coordinated and uncoordinated hmm. uh, because so much of what happens is toned from the top. And I think we have a very different tone from the top at OCC as compared to other regulators. And so there's some degree of coordination here, but also some of it is a legacy of old intellectual and regulatory frameworks being challenged by new technological innovation. And we're in the early innings of how that's going to resolve itself. I'd love to, Marvin, hear your thoughts, especially on the Internet of Value point that Chris raised, but also really hoping to get thoughts on this, this, again, regulatory cognitive dissonance, you know, around the fact that if you really boil this down, right? Like, I mean, there's one argument and one way of looking at this where you say, all we're trying to do is take cash transactions and move them digital. Just the way that you would I would, you know, give Michael, you know, 20 bucks or whatever for, I don't know, something in person. And we just kind of walk away to be no record of it. It'd be whatever it is. This is actually providing more transaction record than what I could do physically in person. So I'm really curious to get this sense of like, that just seems to be a reality, a very visceral reality that is being largely ignored by regulators. And that's true outside of the U.S. as well. And I'd really love to get thoughts on that from each of you. First question you asked was on the internet of value. Yeah. So the interesting thing about trying to regulate the internet of value is, you know, we kind of have 2020 hindsight and kind of feel as though the internet was inevitable. It wasn't totally inevitable. There were a lot of decisions that could have been made that would have undermined the U.S.'s competitiveness when it came to the internet. The last five, 10 years, every country around the world has wanted their own Silicon Valley. But we could have gotten it wrong here. And so some examples, the Federal Communications Commission regulates communications. It's an agency in D.C. There's every state has a telecom regulator. And first questions they had to deal with were, hmm, is messaging on the Internet, like, you know, DMing, is, is that like text messaging on your phone? 
is something like a Netflix, like a cable TV service that should be regulated under the Cable Act. Providing access to the internet, does that fall under the chapter of the law that imposes the cable rules or telephone rules or information tech rules? Three different categories. And they're asking all these questions and it took 10, 15 years to figure them out. There are all these potentially onerous rules that would apply, but all along, luckily, thanks to the pushback from government, pushback from consumers, enlightened policymaking, you name it, at every turn, we kind of got to the right answer. And Sheila, you mentioned the first case I brought regarding net neutrality in 2008. When I brought that case, I remember sending the complaint to the Associated Press, which said, this is just a gimmick. We're not going to write about it. You'll never win. Comcast will be permitted to block BitTorrent because some people use it for piracy. And somehow we ended up, you know, seven, eight months later winning the case. But had we lost the case, every cable company in the country could have blocked any peer-to-peer protocol, uh, including Skype, which was using peer-to-peer. This entire cascade could have happened and the internet could have gone in the wrong direction. Another example has to do with the copyright law called SOPA, which would have made it uh, pretty much illegal to run a site with user-generated content where people can upload content and share videos and images and memes and all the stuff that we love about the internet, right? You would have had to essentially vet every piece of content and it would have been more like broadcasting cable. And I remember two weeks before that bill was killed, a staffer, you know, who was ushering it through Congress telling me, hey, the Chamber of Commerce and the AFL-CIO both, both supported this law. Mm-hmm. It's getting through, nothing you can do, it's going to happen. And that would have really changed the internet. So at every moment, we had to win or we had to come back from behind or, or give a little ground. But we were able to kind of distinguish the good from the bad decently. And I have faith that we can do it again, but it's going to require a lot of work by Chris and Sheila and others to educate lawmakers. And it's going to require a lot of work by the policymakers that are in government educating other policymakers in government. I so agree with what Marvin said. Having been inside the belly of the beast, both in Washington, but also having been at the Financial Stability Board in Basel and IOSCO, so much of what develops is somewhat idiosyncratic based upon a leadership, a personal leadership. I recall a, a probably now 18 months ago attending a meeting of the Financial Stability Board and the finance minister of a top 12 global economy asking the group, I want to just be clear now, we're writing these rules right to make cryptocurrency go away. That's right. That's what we're doing here. There was a book written years ago called Crossing the Chasm, and it painted a bell curve of adoption of technology and basically said that, you know, there are some early adopters of technology on one side of the bell curve and late adopters on the other. And and most people are somewhere in the middle, a traditional bell curve. The same is true in government. There is no difference between the political parties. There's no difference. I think there's some generational difference, but there's some people in the the forefront, some people are in the back end and, and most just kind of come to it rather gradually. And and I think we're still in early stages where you've got a lot of late adopters still resisting, and you've got a few early adopters uh, pushing it forward. And and most of society, as reflected in government, is somewhere in the middle. It's going to take, I think, something of it, the generational moving up the conveyor belt, where there's going to be greater adoption. But I can tell you, a generation or two younger than me get this implicitly And when they get their time in leadership of organizations, this is all going to make a lot of sense to them. But we're still in that phase right now where there's still a fair amount of resistance. And and resistance by a leader can hold back an institution, can hold back a government agency for a long time to come. It's still very idiosyncratic. And I guess that's somewhat 
uh, disillusioning for people who somehow look at the federal government, think there's some master plan behind its approach to technology otherwise. And I'm uh, here to tell you there is none. Mm. It depends on, on leadership from the top. Sometimes having no plan and making a decentralized approach can actually sort of be beneficial. But one of the points you raised earlier, Chris, got me thinking, and that was like, you know, people could grasp challenges of the internet. There's this new toy. It was information. But now we're talking about money and we're talking about this sort of this huge network of regulations and different agencies. And not only that, obviously, vested interests. You're grappling with the most important institutions of all in many respects. Now, I would just take, I want to take that to another level and point out that for the United States, what's at stake here is something perhaps even bigger, right? This is the dollar we're talking about. This is the institution around which American power has been built over the last century. And I just wonder then, how do we get beyond that? Because the instinct must be, and you saw the reaction in Congress the minute that Facebook was talking about Libra as this you know, potential challenger with a multi-basket stablecoin, how quickly people came out and, and shot it down. And I think that comes from this must protect the dollar perspective. You're trying to get people to embrace a digital dollar. Talk a little bit, if you can, about how do you convince them that this is the way to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, to look after that sort of individual part, if, if we believe it is the right way forward. And I'm not always convinced that it is, by the way. But I think one of the reasons why Libra scared so many central bankers is that notion of information leakage, that a commercial player could have access to all the information surrounding commercial transactions, I think was frightening. I think it's something that motivates China. I think it motivates Europe. I think it motivates the United States. And I think it was a galvanizing moment, along with other galvanizing moments, such as China's rapid progress in this area, along with financial inclusion issues generally, and the inability to have surgical precision in monetary policy that we saw with the inability to get COVID relief checks into the hands of the people that needed it most. So I think there's been really four galvanizing events. But when I speak to policymakers in Washington, I break this down to very simple terms. I say this is about modernizing core infrastructure. And the same reason you need to modernize airports, you need to modernize mass transit systems, you need to modernize the dollar for increasing utility in a digital future. You know, if you look in history, you'll see at different points in time, different currencies enjoyed the patronage of trading routes around the world. Once upon a time, during the European exploration of the uh, east coast of the Western Hemisphere, there was a currency that was the preferred currency. It was the dollar, but it wasn't the American dollar. It was the Spanish dollar. And the reason why the Spanish dollar was the preferred unit of currency was because it actually had technological superiority over its competing currencies. Why was it technological superior? Well, it was minted with New World silver, which was more consistently pure. Therefore, it was more consistent of value, but also it was lighter because it required less alloy. But also it was minted in such a way that it can be broken into eight equal pieces known as pieces of eight, making it fractionable and therefore easier to use in commerce, requiring less change to be made in, in transactions. Well, those were technological superiorities over the competing currencies. As we go into a digital future, the dollar remains an analog instrument in a digital world where, where the world's commodities themselves are on a blockchain or based upon digital transactions, as, as the world moves to greater electronic needs with less friction, the dollar remains analog. It's going to be at a significant technological disadvantage to competing currencies. And that will affect the overall US economic performance as well. So 
when I explain this to policymakers, I talk about this is no different than the need to modernize our bridges and our tunnels, which we have failed to do, but which we very much need to do. Yeah, it really is a fundamental infrastructure question. And I think this is similar, of course, to the internet, you know, in the, in the way that, that Marvin, you were speaking about and that you know so well. It's a viewpoint that I think is not viewed as this foundational infrastructure that can then you know, be built upon. And I think the transition in the minds of regulators and others, that transition, I think, is something that I see starting to happen, but I think is really, really important. So I think that would hopefully lead to a little more support of potential innovation. You know, we tend to take our economic strength a bit for granted in the same way we've taken our infrastructure for granted. And I don't know whether it's a a lack of maturity or or self-absorption in our society, but this lack of attention to infrastructure modernization is really going to come to haunt us and it's shortchanging future generations that we don't take it more seriously. And the time has come that we have to take it more seriously. And there's no infrastructure more foundational to our economy than, than our currency itself. I mean, I, I completely agree that money is infrastructure for our economy. I'm the son of immigrants. I was raised to love America, kind of have a bias towards America staying the indispensable nation. And I don't think it would be easy to do without having the dollar as, as the top reserve currency. As a crypto person, I think the greatest cryptocurrency would be the U.S. dollar. Yeah, and let me just add a little in there. What Something I found really interesting is unlike with the early days of the internet, it was really, really new in many ways, just the scale of it. Cash is not new. I mean, they're the premise of like half the thrillers you see you know, on streaming television these days, right? It's like someone wants to disappear or they get a bunch of cash. I mean, it's, it's a very known method of engagement with the financial system is to use paper bills or coins And the cognitive dissonance around this, I find really fascinating. So I'd love to hear from both of you. How are these distinctions being drawn between the idea that something that's really ordinary, just making a cash transaction and paying with dollars, for example, is somehow problematic when it's done online or or differently problematic, let's say? It reminds me of uh, all the analogies that people have made with all technologies over the last few decades, right? Is Airbnb more like a hotel or more like letting a friend crash on your couch? Right. Uber more like carpooling or is it more like a taxi cab? How would you regulate them? When it came to the internet, there was this, you know, one of the first Supreme Court cases, there was a debate over, you know, what is the internet? Is it like a vast shopping mall? Uh, is it like cable TV? Is it like broadcast? <laughs> is it like a, everyone gets a soapbox? And the New York Times headline was nine justices in search of a metaphor. <laughs> that hasn't changed. When, when, you, when you think about, about cash and cryptocurrency, I remember years ago, somebody at a, at a conference saying, uh, you know, I want my transactions on the internet when I buy something on Amazon to be as private as when I spend cash at the bookstore. That's not really what happened. I think that gradual eroding of, of our privacy expectations gets us to where we are today. And when you look at the analogies people are presenting, the analogy you know you made, Sheila, is hey, me spending my Bitcoin or my Zcash or you name it, is like me spending cash in the old days. It's private, peer to peer. To some people, the analogy is oh, this is like a private Swiss bank account in your own pocket. I think we need to, um, to get people to understand that it's more like cash. The son of immigrants and, and viewing these American values in an important way, and as the grandson of immigrants. I get that implicitly, but the reason I think why the dollar 
uh, hopefully remains a world reserve currency is not just for citizens of America, but I think it's for people around the world. I mean, if you, you travel around the world, it's dollars that people hold as their reserve currency under their mattress. In a digital world, all that information is centralized at the Treasury or the Federal Reserve, and it gets hacked by foreign governments, and they can find out which of their citizens are holding dollars under their mattress. Well, that's a game changer for the dollar's role around the world. I mean, there's values built into the dollar, and, and one of those is a degree of economic privacy. It's also free enterprise and, and, and the ability to, to use it as a stable unit of account. Those values are not necessarily the values that U.S.'s economic competitors, like, say, China, want to ingrain in their digital currency. And so I argue that it's important for the digital dollar to be a future reserve currency because of the values inherent in it. And those values are good for many people around the world. They're values that many people around the world aspire to, but they're not necessarily the values that our economic competitors aspire to. And one more point, and that's what was so disappointing about the Treasury's NPR, because it just approached this as a surveillance opportunity, not to really look at the privacy issues, not look at those important values, but just in terms of what's in the best interest of the government to surveil transactions. And that, unfortunately, that's not good enough. That, that makes us no better than, than many countries around the world whose values people don't aspire to. I'll respond to that. I'm also the daughter of immigrants. And I think, and Michael, of course, is an immigrant. So I think we've got kind of, we're rounding it all out here, all the generations. I certainly agree that some of the economic values, certainly around stability, you know, that the dollar or dollarization uh, can or has provided in some parts of the world can provide value to citizens of, of other countries. But of course, we'd be remiss if we didn't note that, you know, there are a lot of consequences to that as well, particularly when it comes to soft power and the ability of the United States to kind of impose policy that is not at all favored by nation states or citizens of those nations. And the ease with which, you know, the U.S. can do that uh, is something that I think we have to acknowledge as well. So there, there's two sides to that coin. The issue of sanctions is an issue in its own right. Exactly. The misuse of sanctions. So I, I don't want to shy away from those are absolutely fair point. I kind of look at this in an idealized way, but certainly uh, discipline amongst the U.S. government and wielding that soft power is something that's a very, very fair debate and discussion. Yeah. I'm curious, because of course, you know, to go back, Marvin, something you said earlier, of course, the, you know, the ultimate analogies that were, that were kind of settled upon led to a certain orientation towards regulation of the internet that I think we, again, with the benefit of hindsight, you know, we would say was correct in, in many regards. And certainly you led coalitions that were really focused, Marvin, on creating a narrative there, right, in the face of tremendous opposition, as in some instances you've alluded to. Uh, you were able to be successful doing that. And so certainly we are seeing the crypto community specifically in the United States, but also globally, really rising up, even with Chris, as you noted, a very tight timeline for comments here, really sort of trying to con construct and work together on this kind of narrative. I mean, I'm curious, Marvin, if you have things you're seeing or things that were maybe successful and kind of really encouraging a more open view towards the complexity of some of these issues. Uh, not necessarily saying that everyone has to land in the same place, but at least to move away from some of the notions that Chris was discussing, like the idea about this is about you know, the ability to surveil and things like this, and having a broader point of view that might, that might translate into regulation that could help spur innovation while still remaining protective in the ways that the government feels are necessary. Yeah, coalition building. Uh, <laughs> is uh, oh, I know. <laughs> and it's a lot of work. So you know, when, I, when, I, when I would work on, on policy issues, I, I probably spent 95% of my time 
talking to my allies, <laughs> trying to get my allies in the nonprofit <laughs> sector, in you know churches, veterans groups, industry, all across the economy to sort of understand the importance of some principle. People are busy. People have a lot of different issues they care about. And if cryptocurrency, for example, doesn't matter to them, or if a particular rule doesn't matter to them, you have to explain to them why, why it does. I, I think folks who care about cryptocurrency should do is think about who are our natural allies out there. Even when it comes to this NPRM, we had 7,000 people filing. I'd be curious to go through and see you know, what kind of people are filing. What walks of life do they come from? What organizations are they affiliated with? Because these are the folks who you can, you can say, hey, wait, I didn't realize people were using crypto in this way. You can then bring these stories to, to policymakers and understand, like, here's what's at stake. You know, I was one of those people who almost never spoke with government officials. If you looked at a percentage of my time, I was mainly talking to, to others who didn't have access to policymakers, who weren't heard from. The other thing, which is somewhat smaller, is uh, it's really important for folks in the industry to coordinate a little bit or quite a bit. Because unfortunately, it does all come down to prioritization. If you're a congressional staffer or even at an agency, there are a hundred issues you're dealing with, right? I mean, if you're a congressional staffer, you've got three issues. One is aviation, one is finance, one is you know education, or you name it. And under finance, you've got 20 different issues, banks and credit unions, and one of them is crypto, right? You spend an hour or two hours a week on crypto. And so if you've got someone coming to you with a laundry list of things that you need, they need to solve for you, it makes it harder. Chris, As someone who didn't spend a lot of time with government officials, you certainly have a good sense of how it works. <laughs> <laughs> well, given that you were one, Chris, I was going to hit you up with a question specifically, the seven and a half thousand comments. Like you can just imagine the, the folks at Pitt said, what do we do? What beast did we unleash here? Right? They've got their work cut out for them. I suppose I want to know is like, will it make a difference? I mean, is the game set? Will they listen to that? How much will they be taken on board? I mean, what do you expect to be the next steps here given that the community has quite loudly spoken? It's a great question, Michael. There is an obligation on government agencies to analyze those comments. And that takes time. You know, at the CFTC, whenever we would do a rule proposal, the comments would then be reviewed by the staff and summarized in substantive reports to the commission. And all the commissioners had an opportunity to read those reports, ask questions about those reports before the agency moved forward to finalize rules. I, I, you know, 7,000 comments. I don't think the CFTC in its 40-year history has ever had such a response. It's not the CFTC involved, but, you know, it's a major agency with major rulemaking, and that's just an extraordinary number of comments. Mm -hmm. It just is going to be very difficult, I would think, to digest them and then finalize a rule in the time frame that I understand people behind this wish to see this done, and then it, to survive a administrative procedures challenge, if that were to come, that those comments were properly analyzed, reviewed, and opportunity for consideration. In a new administration with a new Congress, and yeah, everything is set up for some sort of failure. I suppose I'm interested to know what that is, though, because it could get worse, it could get better. My survey of, of several dozen of them, there's a lot of substantive comments. There's been some yeah. very, very thoughtful views brought forth. And so I, I think it's a, a significant, this is a significant response by a fast-growing nascent industry. I think it's actually a sign of the maturization and the stabilization of this growing industry that that was able to be achieved in that period of time. 
so Marvin, since you're now, you know, well and truly in the industry, what do you see happening? And and we'll just round it up after this. So just as a, a closer, what's what is your crystal ball telling you on how this thing proceeds? You know, that's an interesting question. If I look at a at a crystal ball in the industry, where these rules are going, I kind of just look at myself since it's kind of my job. Trying to make <laughs> Right. And I think maybe it's just self-delusion to think that maybe me and those of us in the industry who are working hard and educate policymakers could make a difference. But I'd like to think Chris and I and others can influence what happens in the future with the help of 7,000 people, at least. <laughs> exactly. You are not alone. You might have thought you were some time ago, but you clearly are not anymore. Here I was thinking, you know, I'm on a cliff and it's it's all over for us, Tonto. And then, then the cavalry. <laughs> the cavalry. You know, you know we have. Uh, Although I, I will say, we, you got a discount for some of those comments because it is an entertaining read. <laughs> it, it is. It is. So I don't know whether we have Coin Center and it's particularly Niraj to thank for this. I did joke on Twitter that he clearly is the driver of Coin Center because I think a lot of that's meme driven. Right? <laughs> very uh, true. Get, get the teams out there. Look, on that note, guys, thank you so much uh, for your time. Really just a fascinating conversation, wide ranging. I, I love the fact that we were able to sort of talk on this sort of high geopolitical soft power values conversation and then swing down into the, the sausage making of, of Washington uh, and somehow tie that all together and wrap it up in a nice bow. So two great guests. So Christian Carlo, Marvin Amori, thank you so much for your time. And to everybody else, thank you for listening. Do come back next week for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Christopher Giancarlo, and Marvin Amori. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Do you have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And stay tuned for our next exploration of this critical topic coming to a podcast app near you on January 22nd, 2021. From all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening.